And uh, today's passage is going to be one that is, well, very recognizable. You are going to hear these words and you're going to say, oh, I think I've heard that before. And this passage has been used in more weddings than anybody can count. So, you know, you're, it's just going to be iconic in that way. And uh, you're, you're going to hear Paul talk about love. Um, I want to remind you that this is in Paul's overall argument now about spiritual gifts. We tend to take this passage and disconnect it from its context. So when we disconnect it, we usually, you know, again, just talk about love and uh, what's the, na- the nature of true love, and that's not a bad thing to do. But Paul here is talking specifically about love in relationship to the way that the church uses spiritual gifts in its operation. That's what his argument is, and he takes a little interlude here to talk about love, but his overall uh, thing that he's covering here is about spiritual gifts within the church. I want to remind you, last week we started into the spiritual gifts section of this book, and I told you three things that are true about spiritual gifts. If you're a follower of Jesus, you have at least one spiritual gift that God has given to you. That spiritual gift is not for you predominantly. It's for the benefit of others. It benefits others. It builds them up. It equips them in some way. And third, although there's such a variety of gifts, we may all have different gifts or maybe we may even use them somewhat differently, there's still a unified whole. We're still all part of one body, the body of Christ, and that's what unifies the, the inner workings of all of our gifts. So that's where I was last week. This week we're going to hear again this passage that billions of Christians have heard over the centuries. And you're going to hear these words again, and they're beautiful words because they're words about how God defines love. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I'm starting in verse 1. This is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they'll pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. I wonder what you think what most Americans think when we say the word love. My hunch is that most of us probably would uh, uh, follow along with the uh, dictionary definition of love. This is the way the dictionary defines love. It's an intense feeling of deep affection. So it's an intense feeling 
of deep affection. In other words, love is what we feel. This leads us to, to uh, base our feelings of love basically on the way that we feel about other people. Do I feel tonight like loving my wife? Do I feel like loving my angry neighbor? Do I feel like loving the gay teacher? I mean, all those are based again on how I feel, this intense feeling of a deep affection. If I don't have that, then obviously maybe I'm not expressing or feeling love. Well, today we're going to discover that God defines love in a very different way, a completely different way than really our world does. And it's, a, it's an excellent version. It's, it's the most excellent because it's, again, the way that God works. He's above all of human ideas, and He's above the ideas that we would normally have about the way that we would categorize love. Today, I want to use this passage, and I want to talk to you about three ways that God's love is different, three ways that God's love is excellent, and three ways, again, specifically about the way love is fitting into the spiritual gifts that are used within any church. Let's start off, and what I want you to see at the beginning is love undergirds. Love undergirds. What I mean by that is love is the foundational principle on which all spiritual gifts are built. Look at the way Paul makes the argument in these first three or four verses. He says this. He says, what if I practiced my spiritual gifts, or you practice your spiritual gifts, perfectly? What, what if we did it like beautifully, like above all other ways of expressing it? We just did it in a perfect way. What if I spoke in heavenly tongues of even angels? The, the languages that the angels speak, I was able to do perfectly. What if I had prophetic powers to know all of the mysteries of God? I had the ability to understand all of those. What if I had faith that was so great that I could move the Cascades, or I could move the Olympics? What if my faith was so, so great that I had the ability to do that? What if I could be so committed that I could even offer my body to be burned to show my commitment? J just imagine what kind of a faith or what kind of a commitment that would be. And so Paul uses these extreme examples, and he says, what if I was able to do that, but what if I did that perfectly, but I did not love what if I was able to speak with those tongues, but I didn't have love beneath it? What if I was able to have the faith that would move that mountain, but I didn't have love underneath it? He says, at that point, they would be meaningless. They would be, as he says here, nothing. They would be nothing. Paul describes again that these ways that we would do these things, the ways that we would demonstrate these, even perfectly without love, he says in the case of the languages, it would sound like a noisy gong. It would sound like a, a clanging cymbal. It would be a dissonant sound. It would be like, oh, stop it. You know, stop it. I don't want to hear that anymore. That's what it would be to express a spiritual gift with perfection, but to not have love that is underneath it. And he says, you wouldn't want to hear that. Let me give you an example. Imagine that I have here with me a small chalkboard, you know, kind of a little hand, one that we used to kind of use in school to kind of write with, you know, it's a, but it's a real chalkboard. It's not one of the little dry erase boards. It's a real chalkboard. And now imagine, imagine I've got the little chalkboard here and I do this. Some of you are like, stop already. I, 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 you don't even have a chalkboard, but I can imagine it. And I, ugh, my spine is tingling. So, you, you know, you just immediately have a reaction to that. that You just don't like the, eh. Paul says, guess what? When you use your spiritual gifts 
and you don't have love, that's what it's like. It's like nails on the chalkboard that is this dissonant sound, and that's what it's like to have a spiritual gift but not to have it undergirded by love. Love is fuel. Love must be present or the spiritual gift will not be used properly. And as much as we talk perhaps about spiritual gifts and what spiritual gifts we have and how to use them, Paul's argument here is you better talk about love because unless you have love that's underneath it, it will be meaningless in the way that you go about it. Love is undergirding all of the use of our spiritual gifts. So that leads us into the question, how do we know when we are demonstrating love or just and that we have a love that's undergirding so that we're not nails on the chalkboard? How do we know that we're doing that? And that's where Paul moves now into the next section where he is going to define for us what love is. I'm picking up now in verse 4. And Paul is going to give a list of descriptions of what love is. So we know when we're doing it or when we're not doing it. And the catch-all phrase I have over all of these is, love is excellent because it's not fleshly. It's not fleshly. And what I mean by that is, love cannot be naturally expressed by our own strength, our own power, our own character. And it's especially not true when we define love in our own terms. You know, I just told you a few minutes ago, again, that the world's definition is one that I think is very soft. It's filled with fantasies and emotional wishes. And again, we are almost always subject, when we use that definition of love, it's subject to whether or not somebody else is helping me, somebody else is serving me. I'm going to love you if is the way that the world's definition of love works. I'll love you if you make me feel good. I'll love you if you're a good friend to me. I'll love you if we have fun together. I love you if you give me sex. That might be the world today. Paul says love is so much different than you can imagine. It's defined by the way that the Father, Son, and the Spirit interact with each other and have love for each other, sacrificial love for each other, deferential love for each other, and they've now spilled that out to their church, to their sons and daughters, and that is what is going to be the model of the kind of love that we're going to have. And so Paul now uses 15 verbs in this section to define the true nature of love. Verbs because they are action. They are things that we do, and that's the way, again, that God is going to define love, but not by something that I feel, but that's something that I'm doing with the people around me. And he's going to give some positive expressions of love and some negative expressions of love. You know you're loving when you do these things. You are not loving when you do these other things. And so, again, positive and negative examples. So that you can see these in the passage very clearly, I have a slide for you here. And I have gone ahead and color-coded all of the uh, things that you are to do are in blue. All the things that you are not to do are in red. And again, uh, those are you know, the iconic list that we hear over and over again. I'd like to read those very slowly. And I would challenge you to put your name in front of each one. I'll lead along. I'll lead you along. And, and, and just in your mind, follow along. So here's why I'm saying Brian is patient. Brian's kind. Your name is not envious. You're not boastful. You're not arrogant. You're not rude. You don't insist on your own way. You're not irritable. 
You're not resentful, which is also keeping a record of wrongs. You're not rejoicing at wrongdoing, but you are rejoicing in the truth. You bear all things, you believe all things, you hope all things, you endure all things. As you put your name in front of each one of those, I'm going to guess that you are kind of like me. And you say, I, I, I see some of those things that I've done, but I see others of those things that, if I'm honest, I haven't done. My love is not all that's on that list. And what I want you to see about that list and what I want you to hear about love today is it's not easy. It's hard. It grates against everything that our personhood, everything that ourselves wants. We want our own way traditionally. And love is counter to that because love is taking somebody else into account. I love what uh, David Pryor said in a commentary I read about this passage this week. He says, when applied to the local church, it becomes dynamite, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It uncovers the weaknesses, the gaps, the failures, and the sins in Christian community. These words cut down to size. They humble us because we begin to see what really matters to God. I don't have time today to go through all 15 of those, give you a description each and an application of each one of them. I wish I did have time to do that, but I don't. And I'm sure that some of those are actually self-evident. You look at the first two, patient and kind, I bet you could give a definition for that. And furthermore, you probably know when you're practicing it and when you're not. But what I want to do is go through just a few of those that are on our list, and I want to you know, understand what he means by those and perhaps apply those. And I've chosen three of them that I think are especially meaningful during this day and age. The first one I want you to see is that love is not irritable. It means easily angered. And I think I could say that we are on the era right now of irritability. Perhaps it's because of COVID and we've lost control of so many things, but everybody seems to be on edge about everything with everyone. Have you noticed how much road rage has hit the news and is like skyrocketed? I mean, people can't control themselves on the road anymore, and it's one of the places where their rage makes its way out. An NBC article I read this week about stress and irritability during the COVID era says it this way, for many, the unending pandemic Political unrest and racial injustice are worsening their mental health. As a result, they're struggling to shake off the gnawing feeling of irritability, and these feelings are taking their toll. Some dentists say they're seeing a spike in the number of patients who've started grinding their teeth so ferociously that their enamel is fracturing. We are in a time of irritability. Paul says... Guess what? Love doesn't act like this. Now, again, we may feel irritable, but we're not pouring that out onto others. It becomes very vogue today, or it has become very vogue today, for people to uh, flaunt just how incensed they are, how irritated they are with something, and they want people to take notice of their rage. Can I tell you, Christians, that's not love. This is not what brings God honor it's not what brings other people honor. 
And so the next time that you are on the edge of saying, you know, I'm just going to let loose on social media. I'm going to let loose with this person. Just let the world know just how incensed I am over this topic, which if you really keep it in perspective, your topic is probably pretty small. The next time you're tempted to do that, ask God, God, would you overtake me? Would you help me demonstrate what love is right now? Because irritability is not what God calls love. I also want to pick up another one. I want to pick up not resentful, which the NIV translates this way. It doesn't keep a record of wrongs. And we all know this, that we have this constant list inside, and it's all the ways that somebody has offended me or somebody has sinned against me. And it's easy to keep that little tally sheet of another incident. And you pull it out. Oh, there's another one. And you write that down. And I'm not saying that it's good if we just constantly are overlooking somebody else's sin. I don't believe that's loving either. But again, and many times again, if, if we are loving somebody, we're going to actually want to reconcile that with that person. And that means actually talking about what it is that's the offense that's been done. It means working through it. It means having a level of, of forgiveness. It has have a level of repentance if you're the one who sinned. And actually some level of uh, you know, a pledge that it's going to be different moving forward, which allows for the relationship to come back together again. So, I mean, that's beautiful when that's operational. But I'm telling you, it's always easier in the flesh to go to your little black book and mark in another little time where somebody has offended you. And that is a sign, again, of keeping a record of wrongs. It's a sign of resentfulness. And God says, that's not love. That's not the way I work. And it's not the way I'm calling my church to work either. Well, I've chosen two negative examples. It's time for a positive example. And I would like to use the last four in his list. They're a unit, I think. And the unit is bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And all of those act like kind of some kind of a long-haul love. It means I'm staying with you kind of love. It means I'm going to bear with you. It means I'm going to hope with you. I'm going to believe for something better with you. And there is a great example of this kind of love, this kind of love that bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, that I saw exemplified over the last few years. And I saw these people, I haven't seen them for a while, at the picnic this week that we had at Hickman Park. The two people that I'm talking about is my friends Ed and Helen Kleffner. And many of you know Ed and Helen. And Helen suffered a pretty serious stroke in 2019. And Helen, uh, you know, I honestly visited her in the hospital shortly after the stroke. And I thought, ooh, man, this is, this is bad. And I really didn't know how much progress Helen would make in, you know, recovering from that stroke. I'm here to tell you today, Helen, well, there she is. She's radiant. And she's, she, she's, she's as gorgeous as she's ever been. And The thing that I think I've noticed through this whole time is the love that this couple has for each other, the love that they have for their Savior. Ed stayed in the hospital with her every night. He never never went home for a night's rest. He always had a cot, and he stayed at her side praying for her. He was in rehab with her. He brought her home and cared for her in tender and caring ways. And, you know, Ed would never say that he has any kind of a, or wants or deserves any kind of medal for that. that that's, that's not what this is about. It's about the love that a couple has for each other, a biblical kind of love. 
That is the kind that is that long-haul love I was just talking about. And they are such great examples of what marriage is and what Jesus says is the love of Jesus for his church. And they're, you know, they're, 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 they're showing us what that looks like. And I'm telling you, that doesn't always happen today. Some people get sick, really sick, and individuals leave them. And so anytime we see that being practiced, it's commendable because it's showing us, again, what the nature of God's love is all about. Well, 15 verbs. Again, I hope you'll go back in the list and maybe have time to look at those a little bit later. But that's the way God defines love, with these actions that are these sacrificial actions. The third reason love is so excellent is because it's permanent. It is permanent. Paul gives a list of things that are going to pass away, but he says, guess what? Love remains. Love remains when all of the spiritual gifts are gone. And he gives another list here. He says, well, what happens when prophecies, well, those pass away. What happens when tongues, those tongues of angels, are no longer needed? Well, those are gone. What remains after all of those spiritual gifts are gone is love. And he uses two analogies to get to that. First, he uses the analogy of a child. He says, when I was a child, I acted like a child. I grew into adulthood, and that's the point at which I gave up my childish ways. I have a little uh, example of something that was important in my childhood. And this is one of my childhood friends. It's Zip the monkey. And Zip the monkey uh, was my furry little friend when I was uh, growing up. He's seen a little better times than he has now. Uh, His little suit is missing a button here. And his hat we had to pin on because it was falling off. His fur is a little bit threadbare. I was wondering about his hands. I was looking at his hands. And his fingers are kind of, well, they're a little shortened. I'm wondering if as a child I I bit them and I gnawed them off? Or did I cut them off somehow? I have no idea. But zip, you know, there he is. And again, there came a point in time in which zip the monkey um, was no longer needed. Or or, or wasn't needed in the same way, right? And so zip the monkey, probably around, I don't know, maybe five, six years old, I wasn't needing Zip, and so Zip went up on a shelf. I've obviously kept Zip because he has emotional importance to me, but I don't carry him around to meetings anymore. Maybe I should. (laughs) Maybe that would be helpful. Zip wants to talk to you, you know. Uh, Maybe that would be very helpful. I don't know. But there comes a time at which we put away the childish ways. And what Paul's saying in, in that is there comes a time at which we don't need Zip anymore, We're putting him aside, those spiritual gifts. But guess what? The whole time, love is what's remaining. We'll always have love in heaven, even if we're not using our spiritual gifts at that moment. So that's one of his examples, childhood. Another of his examples is a mirror. And he says that a mirror is an image. It shows you an image of yourself. And now, again, we need to think about ancient mirrors Because in Corinth, they made brass mirrors that were spread all over the world. So this would have been an illustration the Corinthians really would have gotten. You can imagine brass. I mean, it's not quite as clear as the mirrors we have today. So you're trying to see an image of yourself, and you can kind of see it there, but you kind of can't. And Paul says that's the way this is right now with the spiritual gifts that we're using. You are using those, they're meaningful, they have significance, but one day you're going to see, you're going to be face-to-face with the Lord, you're going to be fully known and fully know, and he says at that point, you don't use the same things, you don't 
you're not treating things the same way as you did in the, the earthly life that you have right now. You graduate from that, and you don't use those anymore. But what you do use is the undergirding of love. And so Paul comes again to this dramatic conclusion. He says, faith, hope, and love, all three of those abide, but the greatest of those is love. So what do we do with this today? How do we apply this to our lives today? I think the easiest way to apply it actually is to the use of our spiritual gifts. And uh, whatever spiritual gift God has given you, uh, he's saying, undergird it with love. Love has to be underneath that. Uh, Maybe God's given you the gift of helps. You love to naturally help other people. It just comes almost second nature to you because God has given you that gift. Maybe you have the gift of administration or teaching or encouragement. Maybe you have the gift of faith or giving. Love is, again, what makes all of those gifts work. And if you are going through the motions right now, you're just kind of using that gift, but you, you know, you're just kind of like, okay, I'm dutifully kind of doing that. Paul says this to you. He says, you need a little boost of love. I'm going to call it, you need the love quotient today. The love quotient. What is the love quotient? The love quotient is our ability to see a person or people that we're helping and actually have a genuine love for those people. The love quotient is almost like a radar that allows you to detect the person that you're serving. So you're not as focused upon what you're doing, but you're focused upon the people that are actually the recipients of that spiritual gift that you're bringing into play. Let me give you an example. We have a mighty issue in our city right now with drug addiction and homelessness. And by the way, they're tied together. They're very close together. We need to understand that, that the, the, the issue there will not be resolved without love. It won't be resolved unless we are able to see individuals as made in the image of God. And when we come to love those individuals, it just doesn't always mean giving more things. It means arriving in the space that says, I love you so much, I don't want you to remain an addict. I love you so much that I don't want a tiny home for you, I want a life for you. And love is is going the extra mile of saying, uh, you matter. And if we as a city are going to resolve that, it's going to be love that's going to need to undergird that because we want new people, not just individuals who are rehabbed for a moment, but people who have new, uh, new lease on life. And of course, we all know Jesus is underneath all of that. That's not the only way that we need the love quotient. You need the love quotient when you're trying to love neighbors in your neighborhood. You need the love quotient anytime you're teaching a Sunday school class. You need the love quotient every time you're trying to love families that are in your local school. And so my question to you today is, how are you doing with the love quotient? If you look at Paul's list, and, I, and we read that earlier together today, I think most of us, we say, I'm not doing that perfectly. I know that. And what that means is we all have space for need. We have space for coming to the cross. We have space for saying, God, would you pour your love into me in order that I might pour that out to others? And so I would like you to earnestly approach God in just a few minutes and ask him for that, to confess that perhaps you're not loving as least as God defines what love looks like, and to ask God to give you a true sense of love, love that flows really from himself to you. And we're going to pray in a moment and ask God to forgive us in that way, to heal us in that way, and to fill us in that way. Would you stand with me? And I want to just do something special as we close the service today. In fact, just go ahead and put your hands out in front in this posture of just wanting and receiving from God. 
We're going to pray in a moment. But if you know this song, the words are up for you. Sing this with me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Melt me, mold me, fill me, use me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Father, we're in this posture of needing you to fill us. We're in this posture of recognizing that your love is so much higher than what we're able to give in the flesh. So we're asking you, Holy Spirit, would you come pour your love into us in order that we might be people that act like that? We want nothing more than to bring you glory and honor, and we realize that we do that when we demonstrate the kind of love that you've given to us to other people. Lord, perhaps we have individuals in mind that we need to love better today. Would you help us within your love and your power to do that, to demonstrate the kind of love that is uh, godly love, that's spirit-led love, that's Christ's love? We honor you today. We pray. Mm-hmm.